welcome to another edition of the Hermeneutics Podcast. I'm your host, Naim O'Brien, and this is the program dedicated to the art and science of biblical interpretation. A study of the history of hermeneutics almost always begins with Ezra the scribe. Ezra's story begins on the tail end of the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile, or captivity, began around 597 B.C., and ended around 538 BC. As the Bible records, the northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen to Assyria around 740 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah survived until it was given by the Lord God into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, with a great many of its people being taken into captivity. Eventually, the Babylonian empire would fall and be replaced by the great Persian empire. Quote, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, end quote, Ezra writes in 1.1 that, quote, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in it in writing, end quote. Cyrus, king of Persia, wrote, quote, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. End quote. That is found in Ezra 1, 2-4. Thus began the great return of exiles to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. The story of their return can be found in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The exiles returned to Jerusalem in several waves. The first wave was led by Zerubbabel and a priest named Jeshua, 538-535 through 535 B.C., and is recounted in Ezra chapters 1-6. through 6. Nearly 50 years later, around 458 B.C., Ezra would leave another group, of exiles to Jerusalem, which is told in Ezra chapters 7 through 10. Ezra is described as a, quote, scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Chapter 7, verse 6, end quote. What did Ezra ask of the king? Namely, to go to Jerusalem. Why did Ezra want to go to Jerusalem? Ezra 7 verse 10 explains, quote, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. End quote. The reason Ezra wanted to go to Jerusalem was so that he could teach the word of God in Israel. So, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra and the others traveled to Jerusalem. The task of teaching the law of the Lord in Israel, which is to say, to Israel, may have been a bit more extensive than we might have imagined. Roy Zuck explains why, quote, When the Jews returned from the Babylonian exile, they were probably speaking Aramaic rather than Hebrew, end quote. Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard agree, quote, 
When the Israelites returned from exile late 6th century BC, they spoke the Aramaic of Babylon instead of the Hebrew of their scriptures, end quote. This may be difficult for us to understand. How can a people forget their own language in such a short amount of time? Well, on one hand, it speaks to the utter destruction of the Babylonian captivity. Thousands were killed, families destroyed, with myriads more scattered about the empire. For example, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. However, on the other hand, it is quite normal, is it not? As I traveled across the U.S. and forming churches of our desire to serve the Lord in Norway, I would often meet second or third generation Norwegians, meaning Americans whose parents or grandparents were native Norwegians who had immigrated to the United States. Even though these individuals were only one or two generations removed from Norway, most of them were unable to speak Norsk. They would often remember their parents or grandparents speaking the Norwegian language. They possibly even knew a few words or phrases. But largely the language was essentially gone. So it is only natural that the Israelites who returned from exile would speak Aramaic rather than Hebrew. Thus, when Ezra would read and or teach the law, translation and interpretation was necessary. We see an example of this in Nehemiah 8, 1-8, and we read, quote, And all of the public gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they have made for the purpose. And beside him stood, and I'm going to read a bunch of names of individuals here that are hard to pronounce, so forgive me, Matthiah, Shemaiah, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseah on his right hand, and Pedaiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, Hasbudaniah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Shabiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabathiah, Hediah, Masiah, Kelatai, and Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites help the people understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading." Quote. The event described in Nehemiah 8, 1-8 would have been fascinating to behold. Ezra stood before the people of Israel and read the law of Moses. Ezra read from early morning through midday, 
though pausing, it seems, to allow the various men listed and the Levites to help the people understand what was being read. Quote, They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. End quote. The word translated clearly is the Hebrew term parash. Zuck elaborates, quote, The Hebrew paras means to make distinct or interpret, possibly here meaning to translate. In addition, the Levites, as they circulated among the people, were given the meaning, that is, explaining or interpreting the law, so that the people could understand what was being read, quote. Referring to the events recorded in Nehemiah 8, 1-8, Henry Verkler writes, quote, Thus began the science and art of biblical interpretation, end quote. Now, it is unlikely that this is the first time the scriptures have been interpreted, translated, and or expounded upon. In fact, helping the people understand the law of God was one of the tasks for the Levites. Moses, speaking of the tribe of Levi, said in Deuteronomy 33.10, They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. But the importance of the events described in Nehemiah 8, 1-8 must be noted. Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard explain, quote, According to rabbinic tradition, this incident spawned a new Jewish institution, the Targum, which means translation or interpretation, end quote. Targums are translations and interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic. Originally, these were strictly oral Targums. However, as Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard note, quote, Eventually, scribes reduced these oral targums to writing in order to perpetuate their use, which continues to the present, end quote. Ezra, therefore, is considered to be, as Frederick Farrar noted in 1886, quote, the originator of the oral law, end quote. The significance of the development of the oral law cannot be overstated. Farrar notes that Ezra was, quote, the founder of Judaism as distinct from Mosaism, end quote, which, among other things, placed a heavy emphasis on the oral law. Now, let me digress for a moment because this can get a bit confusing. Ezra, according to rabbinic tradition, instituted a new era of oral teaching. Kaiser and Silva note, quote, Oral teaching became a fixed and growing supplement to the biblical text, gradually possessing an authority equal to that of the scriptures. End quote. At the same time, says Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard, quote, scribes and rabbis vigorously pursued study and teaching of the Hebrew scriptures, especially the Pentateuch. End quote. The Jews held at least two interpretive distinctions. First, there was the literal sense of the text called the Peshat. Kaiser and Silva note, quote, The Peshat, the clear, plain, or simple, hence the literal or historical, meaning of a biblical passage, end quote. Second, there was the Midrash, or exegesis. Berkhoff notes, quote, one controlling motive and feature of Midrash was to investigate and elucidate by all exe- exegetical means at command all possible hidden meanings 
and applications of Scripture, end quote. There are two types or classes of Midrashic interpretations. First, Halakhic Midrash, and second, Haggadic Midrash. Halakhic Midrash, according to Burkhoff, were, quote, interpretations of a legal character, dealing with matters of binding law in a strict legalistic sense, end quote. Kaiser and Silva add, quote, This form of interpretation attempted to apply the law by analogy and by a combination of text to those exceptional cases for which there was no special enactment in Moses' law, end quote. Higotic Midrash, according to Burkhoff, were, quote, interpretations of a free and more edifying tendency covering all the non-legal parts of Scripture, end quote. Once again, Kaiser and Silva add, quote, This type of interpretation was more illustrative, practical, and mixed with a wealth of allegory, legend, and colorful biblical history, end quote. Both Burkhoff and Kaiser and Silva note that the former Halakhic Midrash was more exegetical in nature, and the latter, Haggadic Midrash, was more homiletical. To say it simply, Ezra instituted a new era of oral teaching. The oral teachings continued to be developed over the centuries leading up to the time of Christ. The oral teachings would later be collected and published in written form around the 2nd century AD. This collection would come to be known as the Mishnah. The Mishnah and the Gemara, the written record of rabbinic discussions, make up the Talmud. The Mishnah, Gemara, and Talmud did not exist at the time of Christ, but much of the content which would eventually be compiled into the Talmud certainly did exist. Kaiser and Silva note that some of the content can be dated back to as early as the 2nd century BC. As previously noted, the oral teachings, which would later become known as the oral law, were meant to merely be a supplement to the written law, the Hebrew Bible. However, eventually, the oral teachings were held as equal in authority to the scriptures. Frederick Farrar notes, quote, The oral law was first exalted as a necessary supplement to the written law, then substituted in the place of it. The Pentateuch was disparaged in comparison with the Mishnah, the Mishnah in comparison with the voluminous expansions of the Gemara, end quote. As an example, Farrar quotes from the Eruban tractite of the Talmud, quote, Scripture is like water, the Mishnah like wine, and the Gemara like spiced wine, end quote. Consider also the unbelievable claim found in the Sota tractate, quote, He who only studies the scriptures is but an empty cistern, end quote. Now, I realize that these quotes are from the Talmud, which did not exist at the time of Christ, so I cannot say for sure that the quotes existed prior to or at the time of Christ. However, the sentiment surely existed. Consider the words of Jesus to the Pharisees and scribes as recorded in Mark 7, verse 13, quote, Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do, end quote. Jesus notes that the tradition referred to as Corban has made void or wrongfully negated the actual word of God, 
Moments earlier, Jesus had said, quote, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That's found in Mark chapter 7, 6-9. We can easily see then that the oral law which had developed after the time of Ezra had already, by the time of Christ, usurped the authority of the very word of God. Thus, Jesus noted, the word of God had been supplanted by the traditions of men. As this is a study of the history of hermeneutics, let us now direct our attention to the rules or methods of interpretation utilized by Jewish interpreters. As I said before, the study of the history of interpretation almost always begins with Ezra. The next person of interest following Ezra is almost always Rabbi Hillel. Farrar notes that the importance of Hillel, quote, The gigantic edifice of the Talmud really rests on the hermeneutic rules of Hillel as upon the most solid base. While the dates vary, Rabbi Hillel's life possibly intersected with the life of Christ. Hillel is said to have died around A.D. 15. That was according to Kaiser and Silva, which means, according to Farrar, the Hillel may have been one of the teachers who interacted with the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple, which we read in Luke 2, 41-52. Of course, we will never know this for sure. Even if Jesus and Hillel had never met, Jesus would have most assuredly heard of the great Rabbi Hillel. Berkhoff notes that Hillel was, quote, one of the greatest interpreters of the Jews, end quote. He goes on to say that Hillel, quote, may be regarded as the founder of the rabbinic system, end quote. Hillel is perhaps best known for providing the principles for exegesis known as the seven rules of Hillel. The seven rules of Hillel are, one, light and heavy, two, equivalence, three, deduction from special to general, four, an inference from several passages. 5. Inference from the general to the special. 6. Analogy of another passage. And 7. The influence or the inference from the context. I'm going to examine the seven rules of Hillel in depth in the next teaching episode because I think it may deserve its own episode. There is simply too much valuable information to squeeze into the end of this episode. But we should note here that the seven rules of Hillel may sound somewhat familiar. In fact, we use similar, if not some of the same rules still today. Farrar notes, quote, Some of the rules are as old as the unconscious logic of the human mind. Some of them are exemplified even in the law of Moses. The rule of analogy and the rule of light and heavy, were used by our Lord himself in his arguments with the Pharisees and in his teaching of the multitude. The seven rules of Hillel may be applicable, at least to some degree, to interpreters still today, and therefore deserving of our consideration. But as we will see on the next teaching episode, 
Even good rules of interpretation can be misused and abused, leading to all sorts of horrific misinterpretations of God's Word. 